Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much. My name is Chris Spangle, and I am excited to talk about education again and offer you some different opportunities. Maybe you can think differently about your children's education. And my guest today is John England, who is an educational policy expert from the Libertas, from the Libertas Institute, and he is going to talk about microschooling. What if you're a teacher and you're miserable at your job? I think that's sort of synonymous. Like, if you're a teacher, you're miserable, but it's your job at a public school anyways. What if you were able to take control of your destiny and you were able to start your own school and teach on your own terms without worrying about bureaucratic nightmares? Well, John's going to tell you how to do that. What if you're a parent who is dreading sending your kid to sit in a chair bored for 12 hours or whatever they have to say? I don't know. It's I remember being really tired all the time and barely learning anything and getting C's. Could there have been a better educational model? There wasn't then, but there is now, and you have the power of choice. And our and our friend John England, uh, I almost said friend, but I meant guest, but he's a friend now, uh, is here, and we're going to talk about all those things right after these messages. Before we begin, I just want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting this show. That's really how we support the network. It's also how I support my kids. So you're not only getting the benefit of paying for all the infrastructure of multiple different shows in the network, you're also making my children happy. And isn't that the best thing in the world to make children happy? So uh, especially the people who do that the most are our $100 a month members that is Jason Doolittle, Christy Avery, who makes my kids especially happy with all of her gifts. She's so sweet. Reinhold, Matthew Durbin, and Vincent Pycole. And everybody that subscribes to the Patreon, it, it is value for value. So if you find value in what I do, then please give value back to the network, to the Chris Spangle Show, and to me for the time and effort that I put into educating you and helping you think differently. Uh, you also get several different goodies. You'll get early release of episodes uh, weeks in advance, sometimes months in advance. You will also get ad-free versions of the show. You will also get a back catalog going back to 2012. Uh, I think it actually goes back to 2008 to some of my very early radio shows. So there is, an, there is uh, I think, like 1,500 different episodes in there. So it's a huge library of content. You can learn about past current events. You can learn about different philosophies, and you can just have some fun listening to it. We really thank you so much for supporting The Chris Spangle Show. It means a lot to us. Uh, it means a lot to my family, especially, and it means a lot to everyone here at the network. So if you would, please go to wearelibertarians.com. Find the link there. You can also go to patreon.com slash wearelibertarians, or you can find it in the show notes and become a patron today. John England of the Libertas Institute, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, happy to be on. You know, I love talking to anybody who is working in the educational field. We've had our friend Hannah Frankman on. I don't know if you know her over at rebeleducator.co, now called something else that I'm forgetting. Um, one day I will have Carrie Baldwin on, who I, I see you interact with Twitter on a lot about microschooling, and we'll touch on that a little bit. But I love talking about educational policy. I've got uh, two young kids, and we're looking into schools now, and um, unable, <laughs> for many reasons I won't go into legally here, to do very much with her our oldest schooling. But uh, our youngest, he's going to get a full smack range of all kinds of weird stuff that I need your help figuring out. So uh, first, let's talk about who you are, John. How'd you get ed interested in education? 
Uh, and then yeah. we'll talk about some of the exciting stuff that's happening in entrepreneurship and education. Yeah, absolutely. So John England, I'm the education policy analyst at the Libertas Institute. I'm actually a former public school teacher and principal. And, uh, you know, with a lot of parents, uh, with everything that happened during COVID and everything like that, I started thinking about how I actually wanted my children educated. I started looking at that more. And uh, I, I started looking into that. I met Connor randomly at a uh, Connor Boyack, our president, at a presentation, and I made a switch. I decided I didn't want to be in public education anymore. I wanted to go instead empower parents and help them to be able to choose the education that they want for their children. That's really interesting. So, so you're kind of in the think tank game recently, and you were a teacher. Were there very specific things that just made it impossible to to do your job that made you start to think about looking elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of teachers experience this. Uh, the bureaucracy in public education is real. Uh, if you think about it, it starts, you have the federal level and they pass laws and then you get to the state level and then they pass laws and rules. And then you get to the state boards of education and they pass rules and then your local board will pass rules. And then sometimes your principal or uh, other entities will pass other rules. So you just have all these layers of rules that come into a, a public school classroom and even if a teacher wanted to do something innovative, it becomes really, really difficult because you have so much red tape you have to cut through. So when you were a teacher, were there like subversive meetings with the other teachers about some of the things that you do now? Like, are you are you now passing them secret pamphlets <laughs> like Bibles in China at the at the, you know, get togethers with your school friends? Some of them. I, I am talking to them about some of the opportunities that they have to be their own boss. Uh, that's something that I think has just been amazing, actually, as I've gotten out of public education. I used to think I was a very innovative uh, educator, uh, but I realized I had blinders on because of the bureaucracy that was there. And I, I started meeting people here in Utah and across the country who are doing amazing, innovative things in education, things that we would have never dreamed of even trying in the public school system. So, yeah, I think a lot of people like me, you know, you think public education, you think private education, and you think homeschooling. But it seems like the more I delve into this, there's so many other things. So give me some examples of John the educator thinking he's innovative and then taking off the blinders and going, holy cow, because I maintain I'm not anti-teacher at all. And I've always said this to many of my teacher friends. I'm like, you you dislike me because I talk about educational reform, but I'm not anti-teacher. I think you can make more money, have more control, and have a better working environment. And then they go, oh, okay. I mean, so give us some examples between then and now. Yeah. So, and actually, I'll, I'll bring up the best one I had. It, it was as a principal. I went into a teacher's classroom and watched her, she, she created what she called court. And so she would put out, you know, a debate style uh, topic out there. Uh, it was fifth grade. So it was usually around American history, which is a, a big part of the social uh, studies core in Utah. And she'd say, okay, what, what are the pros and cons of, you know, you had during the American revolution, you had those who wanted to rebel against England and those who didn't, why would they feel that way? And she would get them up and they would talk and then they would 
choose a side actually they they they'd have people decide different things and that this was for me it was a super innovative super engaging way to uh engage with history and, and got the students really involved she'd bring in primary source documents things that a lot of other public school teachers i i didn't see do in fact i didn't do that as a fifth grade teacher and so that was some of the really innovative stuff that i saw in the public school system uh but then i've gotten out of that and uh the one that I love talking about is there's a school here in Utah called breakout school. And this is a former pharmacist who has started a school for students with ADD and uh, autism. And they spend 80 to 90% of their day outside. Wow. And one of the things that he does that is just absolutely amazing is he takes these students and they're doing field trips. They're doing all these things all the time. But he allows them, especially student with autism, one of the things that everybody knows about them is they ha- they get hyper-focused on certain topics. And he allows them to. And so they become experts in those areas. In fact, they went to a dinosaur museum recently. And one of his students was walking around talking specifically about Antarctic dinosaurs. And a paleontologist at the museum heard this child talking and said, he knows more information about those specific topic uh, dinosaurs than I do. And so let them have that superpower of being hyper-focused and become experts quickly. And so we would have never done that because we have standards, we have schedules, we have things that we have to do in the public system. We can't do that uh, as well in the public system. And yeah. So he's able to do that. I had a, a similar situation. I love history and my uh, brother-in-law, who's 13, uh, he's homeschooled, and I'm like, I'm going to really impress him with some history facts. And then he just he knows everything and blows me out of the water all the time because of his education. But I just I just uh, had occasion to go to a school here locally, which it has four in-person locations around Indiana. And it has an online component, and it's a K-12 through school. It's virtual and in-person and sort of a charter school. And it specializes in ag technology. And a lot of their students are, um, they said, on the spectrum, and they teach them basically they have decided as kids they're going into ag technology, and they just have like two-hour drone classes and hyper-specialized. And he's like, you would not believe the depth of knowledge that these kids get because they're in a similar situation where they aren't going to function in a regular you know, lecture class like I had, like you probably had. But they get specialized training from the time that they're young kids. So those 10,000 hours of Malcolm Gladwell, you know, those are paying off. Uh, I just think that's tremendous. And that's sort of the the great opportunity about what's going on. You hear the term entrepreneurial educator or education entrepreneur a lot now. Is that like a new field? And what does that encompass? Because it's not just the three anymore, homeschool, private school, public school. It seems like there's a whole new you know, what are some examples, some top line examples? Yeah, so there are, and 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 I call them education entrepreneurs myself, uh, because they're they're going out. What does an entrepreneur do? They go out, they risk their own income, they risk their own capital, and they try to build something that they think people want. And what I'm finding is that parents want it. They absolutely want it. In fact, there was one micro school founder that I spoke to. She expected to open her school with eight students. And so that's one of the first innovations, very small schools, you know, eight to 30 students are opening up all over the place, but she expected to open with eight students. She had 28 enroll, way more than what she expected and makes it way more viable as a business. 
uh, for her. But there are people who are innovating on a variety of things. So maybe it's the number of days that they go to school. So I currently have two students going to a micro school. They go three days a week is all. They don't go all full five days. There's uh, another program that goes two days a week and they work really closely because some parents, you know, hey, mom works two days a week or three days a week, but they still want to homeschool some of that. And so it really becomes this idea of an unbundled education. You know, you think of a public school, you think of a charter school, you think of a private school, and they bundle all of the education into one package. And for some, that's really convenient. That's what they want. And it works out for some students, but it doesn't work out for all students. And so you get this spectrum between a highly bundled education to something that's completely unbundled to where parents are choosing individual classes from different providers and, and doing it that way. And then they're combining that with homeschooling. And so there's just this wide range of things that are happening. Um, another education entrepreneur that I just spoke to as well, she opened up a once a week science class that was outside. Um, and you would think that this would be in a big city because she opened it up thinking I would only have one section. Demand was so high that she has three sections of this class and a wait list a mile long. She's in a town of 500 or less. And so it, the people want these options and uh, that it's out there. And, and it's just such this big variety of, of what it looks like. Um, yeah, I think yeah. it tends to kind of be the conversation of, oh, education is bad. Let's find some alternatives. But, I, you know, this the man who started this school, this uh, ag school, he's like, there's no Spanish teacher at a rural country school in Indiana. We yeah. have one. There's no opportunity to have the level of chemistry that we have at a at a county school. You know, we may have had it in the donut counties where I went. You may have it in IPS, but I mean the the collapsing nature of especially rural schools makes it really necessary to have these alternatives. And I think it's fascinating. My uncle, he's a tr- a chemist. He was a chemist at Lilly, and he re- was retired. And he's like. I'd love to go teach at a school, but they don't want me. I've talked to schools. They didn't want... Now, this was 15 years ago. He would have been able to teach a chemistry class now. If you were in that position, like, how would you even go about navigating this new field? Where would you research? Like, how would you... Let's start with people who are interested in starting the entrepreneurship, and then we'll get to parents. But, like, how do you wade in on this? So, that's an actually interesting thing. Who are starting these micro schools? It's actually former public school teachers for the most part. Um, one person I talked to estimates about 70 to 80 percent of them are former public school teachers that mm-hmm. are starting these new things. So they already have the education background. They understand how to work with kids. They're used to doing those things. Um, and then where I'm coming in and some of the work I'm doing here at Libertas is I'm trying to help them understand the business side of things. You know, a lot of public school teachers, they've never thought about things like payroll. They've never thought about things of how do I do my accounting? How do I do human resources? Anything like that. So that's something that uh, I'm trying to help gather and work with them. I can make a lot of connections for them. Um, but they're they're figuring it out. They're, they just get out. They start their school. Some of them start out of their home. Some of them will go find a building. That's the thing about this uh, new educational entrepreneurship that is going about is people are rejecting the brick and mortar you know they're doing it outside they're doing it out of their home they're meeting in a public library 
they're they're finding a way to make it work and they're doing it at a very low cost and they're passing that savings on to parents. It almost sounds like podcasting where, you know, it was yeah. bespoke and now it's becoming an industry and you're, you know, uh, trying, God love Walter Block, but trying to get Walter Block to understand Zoom in 2013 was <laughs> probably way more difficult than it was is now, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's 10 years older than because everybody just understands online and Zoom and, and all that stuff. But, you know, I, I I guess I can't have, wrap my head around it a little bit because I would think if you were, I, I, I am the a founder of a charter school that never made it because charter schools kind of got started and it had already sort of like conglomerated by the time we were starting and we didn't have a lot of rich friends. Um, and it was very difficult to get through the red tape that the city, the state and feds have had put in place for that. Does that exist in today's environment where it's a little more nimble is it as simple as setting up an LLC, like you're starting a podcast and you just get to business and try to find some clients? Like my sister-in-law who started a daycare and found some parents and, you know, has a full-time daycare in six months. I mean, is it that easy now? It can be for sure. Um, and and a lot of these uh, parents who are interested in it, you have parents who are already looking into this. Homeschool parents are that kind of leading edge of pushing the boundary of what education can look like. They've decided to take that on to themselves. And so if you're just barely getting into it, I would find, you know, the homeschool mom that lives in your neighborhood and talk to her. What are some of the options that you have out there? I That's how my wife and I got started. We said, hey, we know this mom down the street. We want to, I want to start homeschooling my kids. So she got with her and, and they're, they are more than willing to share resources. Talk about the trial and error that they went through and, and teach you and help help you avoid some of the mistakes that they made when they started homeschooling their children. Um, but yeah, it, it's right now it's, it's a, the wild west a little bit. Um, there people are just starting things. I, some of them are, are starting, uh, without seeking the permission slip from the cities. Some of them are just, are going through that process and, and going through, uh, you know, the zoning process. And that's something that we're working on at Libertas too, is how do we reduce the regulatory barriers to make it easier for them to start? So one of the things is let's make them permissible in all zones. Cause right now they're not um, let's make, uh, maybe we reduce the building occupancy, the building code that uh, they have to go through, you know, why couldn't a business building like I'm sitting in right now, house a micro school? Well, I think it could. I, as a parent, I'd be very comfortable sending my kid here, but it doesn't meet that educational occupancy or building code that a lot of the public schools have. But then micro schools aren't putting as many students in a classroom as the public schools are. And so maybe it needs to look a little different. And so just asking those questions, those are some of the things that are happening. And right now, you know, there there's certain models that are a little more prevalent that are happening. Acton Academies are, are a big one, but they're not a corporation they're they're just a model of learning, and then the individual act, acting academies are their own person. But yeah, a lot of uh, founders are just starting an LLC. They've got five or six parents in the neighborhood that they know who would want to send their children there, and so they start the class or they start the school based off of that. All right, so let me translate for all of you listeners what he just <laughs> said. Okay. That means if you're an entrepreneur, you have two to five years before the New York Times notices, 
which means you have five to eight years before your city and state notices, which means you have 10 years before the feds notice and start now. So you get grandfathered in because if you wait 10 years, you're out of luck. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's generally how this stuff works. It, it, it is, especially with uh, states that passed um, an education spending account. The, the market right now for alternatives to the public system is hot. They're like, I, I, I gave a couple examples already there. People want something different. It's not that they're necessarily even saying they want something better. They just want it different. They want, you know, I talked to one, they have a two hour lunch every day because they want the kids to get out and explore and be with each other and have time to relax between classes. Like the doing something different than the public school system is uh, an amazing opportunity right now for anybody who's interested in starting a micro school. So let's define a micro school and talk about that. And then we'll go to the ESAs. So what is a micro school? Is that how you would define like the person who has the school one day a week that's teaching Spanish, which I need to talk to my wife. Uh, She's a Spanish (laughs) teacher that's uh, currently stay at home mom, but maybe we get a little uh, Spanish teacher action going here. Um, Is a micro school kind of a catch all term for a bunch of different ideas like that that you've talked about? Yeah, it's beginning to be kind of this catch-all term. So it's not quite a homeschool or a homeschool co-op. You know, it, it's a little bit more formalized than that, but it, it fills that space between a homeschool co-op and a traditional private school. And so you have everything in between that. Um, so like I said, you have the one once a week one-off classes, but you also have schools that are five days a week and look a lot like a traditional public school. They're maybe just do some things just slightly differently. And so, and you have everything in between, everything in between. And, and that's really what a micro school is. You know, it probably isn't the dance studio, um, but it's some, somebody who's providing what we would traditionally think of as an educational class in some way, shape or form. So it's a Spanish class. It's a science class. It's, you know, an English reading class. Maybe it's a speech and debate class. All of these things that, that can be out there or they provide all of them. Um, Some of them are, uh, you know, they're very learner directed. The Acton models are, are one of those where they have a variety of curricula that the parents can choose from and or that the students can choose from to learn math or to learn reading. And then they set their own goals of what they're going to learn each week in each quarter. And then they just report to the teacher. They report and they don't even call them teachers. They call them guides. They report to the guides. They report to the the parents here's what I did. Here's, here's the goal I set. And here's where I got on my goal. You know, I, I failed here or I got better here. And so maybe I need to increase the, how difficult my goal is, you know? And, and so there's, there's a lot of just, you know, sometimes we think of school as, you know, I have to go in, I have to sit and I have to listen to a lecture all day. And that's, that's what there are so many options out there that are not, uh, those options. They're, they're very different things that, uh, that, that you don't have to do that. You can go and you can be outside. So educational savings accounts or follow the money follows the student. Can you define that? What does that mean? And what is that meaning for the micro school movement? So, yeah. So, uh, Utah's passed an education spending account, Arizona passed one, Florida, Uh, Iowa, Ohio, I think passed one. There's been a whole bunch of states that passed or increased this education spending account this year. 
And what this is, is it's the state portion of the education funding and parents get to choose how that goes. Um, and really for the, the best ones are, it has to be for educational expenses and then leaves open that wide gray area of what that means. Um, those are the best ones that are out there. Some get a little bit more limiting in what you can and can't spend them on. Um, but parents can use it for things like private school tuition, but they can also use it for tutoring. They can use it for before and after school classes. They can use it for summer school programs. They can use it for, um, I have a kid in a, uh, ninja course because he enjoys, you know, swinging around on the monkey bars and all those things like those types of things is are all acceptable uses. And so you can build your own program or you can find that bundled program, or maybe it's part of a bundled program and parents can really just dial in on what do I want my child to be learning? What are they interested in? Um, you know, my kids, I, I love sports, but God bless my kids. They're not super into sports. Um, maybe it's cause I have four girls, uh, <laughs> but, uh, they're, they're not really into those things. And so, but they're into ballet, you know, and they love playing the piano. And so I can, I can really emphasize those things and go find those classes and courses for them. Aren't you just destroying public schools with an idea like that? Because you're, because the way, you know, here in Indianapolis, the first two weeks of school determined school funding. So, uh, the, you know, there was a great rest in, rest in peace. Matt Tully wrote this great series of articles on manual high school, 30% graduation rate, and they had squads of people going out picking up the truant because it mattered so much to their funding. Every kid counted. And then they didn't care if you came to school or not. Uh, but the argument is that money following the student means that the marginalized and the disadvantaged are going to be more hurt because they'll be sent to schools that are less than. And this is just sort of a neo school segregation. How would you respond to that argument? The data just doesn't support that. Uh, you, most people who choose to use these programs are minorities or people with students with disabilities. Those are the highest two groups of students who are accessing these, uh, these education choice programs across the board. And the other thing that happens is the data supports the fact that when you allow for more choice you get better results from all schools across the board. Test scores raised for the public school system. Test scores raised for the charter schools, the private schools, the micro schools, these homeschooling, it all raises across the board. You look at someplace like Arizona. Arizona is often described as the Wild West of school choice with a really robust charter school system. They, have, they were the first ones to ever pass an education spending account. All of these things are passed there and they consistently show the most growth for students from year to year. That means that students are learning more each year than any other state across the country. And they have the most wide open, free to choose education program. So I laugh at them. Um, I, a lot of the public school teachers, when I talk to them outside of the hearing of some of the public school unions, um, they will say like, yeah, I've got kids who would absolutely benefit from this program because they don't fit the public model. Yeah. I, I have those students every year. There was one kid who just, he didn't want to be in the public school. He didn't like it. He didn't like sitting all day. He didn't like, you know, and I, I thought it was a pretty good teacher, but even like you can have the best teacher, but if the model doesn't fit them, 
they're going to struggle with that school and they're going to fail. So yeah, this allows parents to find the best thing. I know you have young kids, but you should come spend a week out here in Indianapolis at some point. We've got the Friedman Foundation with the great Robert Enlow leading it, where it's uh, the Milton Friedman Educational Choice. Uh, it's it's not the Friedman Foundation anymore. It's something else. So we've got choice. Yeah, we've got Lumina Foundation, which is Sally Mae converted into a foundation. We've got all kinds of awesome institutions that are looking at reforming education. Thank you, Pierre Goodrich uh, from way back when um, started Liberty Fund and all these organizations and helped seed them. But, uh, you know, my choice in terms of sending my four and a half year old to school looks a lot different than when my parents looked at IPS and went, heck no. Uh, as a parent, we are comfortable living in an IPS school district to send our daughter to school at a public school because we have, you know, my sister is a teacher and she was uh, adamant against living in IPS and then charter schools came along. And then that made IPS start this, the uh, all these different types of schools and then all these organizations like the Mind Trust and other organizations moved in to help IPS, our biggest school system, navigate the disruption that More Choice had. And lo and behold, my daughter, our first choice is an immersion school where she can speak Spanish 50-50 part of the day. So she gets to to have a completely diverse education in different ways. It's, you know, there's Montessori schools, there's Center for Inquiry schools. Like IPS over the past 20 years broke like just adding charter schools broke the model of IPS and changed it for the better to the point that my nieces are in a school that does a lot of nature activities. It's still kind of fundamentally like sit, listen and learn at the blackboard, but I, I you, you start to see the cracks and now the whole community, John is a little bit more open to more choice and a little more comfortable with some more choice and a little bit willing to move a little further and maybe consider some other options. Uh, and I just think it's tremendous. So, you know, I just want to echo exactly what you said. Once you offer some choice and the teachers and the parents and the stakeholders in the city start to go, wow, this really does work. It can really change things like in Utah, Arizona, and in Indiana. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that I would ask, absolutely add to the the school leaders, the public school leaders who look at this and realize I can do something different. I can maybe offer some part-time classroom experience for some of these homeschool groups. There's a lot of homeschoolers. They want that one-off class. You know, it, it's hard to find a calculus teacher for a high school student in a one-off class. It just is. I can do Khan Academy and online works for some students, but doesn't work for all students. Some, some of them need in-person learning, right? And so a forward school, uh, a forward thinking school leader would look at this as an opportunity to actually attract more students to their school if they think about it as this opportunity. So if you're a parent and you're interested in some of these different models, you're in my shoes and you may, maybe don't have like the queen bee of homeschooling like my mother-in-law, um, you know, how would you go about it? I mean, we've got a really strong homeschool environment here, like the Indiana Association for Home Educators, my organization that I'm on, the Indiana Foundation for Homeschooling. There's a bunch of great Facebook groups. Like, do you just pick a Facebook group? Do you find an organization? Like, how would I find a micro schooler 
teacher if I wanted to? You know, if I'm a parent, how do I get involved in this movement? Do I go to the homeschoolers? Do I do, do I contact you? Like, how, how do I go about it? It's so confusing. Yeah, I would probably go to the homeschoolers. They, Like I said, they're on the, the leading edge of pushing what education looks like. They know about the micro schools. They know about the public schools. They know about the charter schools. And they, they go through and they pick and choose. That's a great place to start. Um, you can reach out to, so Libertas is part of the uh, SPN organization. So you can find the SPN organization in your state and reach out to them. And state, they probably, pol- state policy network. I mean, yeah, state uh, yeah. policy network for those that uh, aren't in politics like me. I apologize for that. And, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's different groups out there. It's not always easy to find them because it is still in that early adoption phase. Uh, but you, you can, like I said, everybody knows a family that homeschools, you know, you, you know where they are, or if you search up micro schools in Indianapolis, uh, you're going to find something, uh, there. And so that's why I would just start doing, start looking at it, start thinking about it. What is it I want? What do I want education to look like? What can I find? Sometimes it's like, you know, I want an outdoor education. So Google search outdoor education for K-12 students, like you're going to find something, especially in big metropolitan areas. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I'm going to have you back. We're going to talk about AI and education, why we should or should not be terrified of it. So maybe in a couple months, we can have you back and talk a little bit about that. But John England, self, shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow your work and learn more? Yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot. So uh, jengland1226 is my handle on Twitter. You can follow my work there. You can follow us at libertas.org, L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S.org. And uh, a lot of my writing will go up there. And then uh, we post videos and things like that as well. So you can follow my work in both of those places. All right. And you'll find all that stuff in the show notes. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for joining me, please. If you enjoyed this episode, you found something interesting. It benefits both John and I and the movement at large if you share it with your friends and spread the word. Thank you so much, and we'll see you again here on The Chris Spangle Show. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.